Well, if the Gonzaga Bulldogs are in the Big East in a few years, who's going to become their rival? What does it mean for the women's team and for the WCC? All of that and more discussed here today on Locked on Zags. Don't go away. You are Locked on Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you daily reports through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. This episode of Locked On Zags is brought to you by Sling TV. Sling, the TV you love for a price you'll love. Try it today. All right, it's Mailbag Monday. Very, very exciting stuff. Lots of questions about the Big East today after Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman spoke about the conference's future and at least made it seem plausible that they would look to expand in a couple of years. We're going to talk about that here. This is just a reminder. If you are interested in participating in Mailbag Monday, multiple ways you can do so. You can tweet at me at Andy Patton CBB whenever you are thinking of a question. You can also respond to a tweet that I post on Sunday morning soliciting questions. You can also email me. AndyPatton013 at gmail.com. Again, whenever you're thinking of a question, you can send multiple questions. You can send multiple emails, whatever it may be. Uh, That's a great way to get your questions into the show. All right, without further ado, let's get right into it. This question comes from David via Gmail. David says, if Gonzaga does move to the Big East, do you think they'll establish a a rivalry with anyone in the conference? And will or could other teams join at the same time? Yeah, two great questions. Of course, that second question could potentially inform the first question, depending on which teams would join, if that is the case. Uh, For that situation, the Big East is at 11 right now. Uh, Again, Commissioner Val Ackerman made it clear that for right now, they're good at 11. They're not looking to expand at all. She mentioned they would consider expansion when their media rights deal is up, which is, I think, July 1st, 2025. Uh, That's kind of where a lot of this conversation has stemmed from, is is that the timeline where Gonzaga would conceivably try to get into the the Big East, that the Big East would accept them, certainly if you're negotiating media rights deals. And you can pull a program like the Zags, a perennial top contending team, number one seed, a team that has had, you know, really high level players like Chet Holmgren, like Jalen Suggs, like Drew Timmy, a program that's had a really strong relationship with ESPN for the last 10 years or so. Certainly makes sense that the Big East would like to try to pull Gonzaga in at that time to potentially renegotiate for more money in a contract. But it's not clear if that necessarily means they would need to get more than one school. Going from 11 to 12 makes a lot of sense for the Big East. It evens up the numbers. It evens up the matchups in the in the regular season. It tends to make things a lot easier. Clearly, there are a lot of elements of Big East and Gonzaga that are not necessarily super simple uh, in terms of travel and geography and, and things like that. But numbers-wise, it could actually make some sense. Now, the Big East is talking to other schools. They made that clear that they've had informal conversations with multiple schools. We don't know exactly what schools those are. We have some guesses. The Dayton Flyers are very likely on that short list. St. Louis, the Billikens are likely on that list. Loyola, Chicago, the Ramblers, uh, potentially even looking out west beyond just Gonzaga. Maybe they're looking at St. Mary's. You know, Randy Bennett, that program has had an incredible amount of consistency for a long time. I'm curious what that would look like if St. Mary's were to go to the Big East. I think it would be challenging for them in a lot of ways, but I, I don't think that that team would just fall off on the wayside. You know, I think they would still pick off some good games, be play spoiler, potentially have a couple good enough seasons to to really challenge for NCAA tournament bids. I don't think it would be a bad decision for the Big East to consider that, but I'm not getting the sense that the Big East is looking at doing a 
long-term or an expansive uh, move out in, out west, maybe just pulling Gonzaga in in that regard. But I do think there are some other schools that, that could get a look, and potentially that could change the rivalry conversation. A uh, big one is Kansas. I don't really think this is all that likely, but it has been at least postulated or discussed by people in the media that Kansas could be the the school that the Big East attempts to do what they have done with UConn, where they pull a school in that does have football. That football program goes independent. Kansas, not a great football program. They started out this year really hot, have, have fallen off pretty considerably in the last few weeks. I don't think Kansas would do this. UConn made sense because they were a previous, you know, in founding institutional member of the Big East. Uh, Kansas doesn't really have that affiliation with the Big East. I don't think that moving out of the Big 12 to join the Big East is really worth it from that perspective, especially because moving your football team to independent uh, is it's hard. It's, it's not something you can really do unless you really, really borderline need to. And I don't think Kansas is in that position. Regarding rivalries, I think the natural one right now, as much as there can be a natural one in a conference where every school is halfway across the country, uh, would probably be the Creighton Blue Jays. I think they, they've they had some tough games in the past. They've played each other in the NCAA tournament. They've played each other in non-conference games. They've shared players uh, in the sense of Grant Gibbs, who was a, a good player at Gonzaga, went over to Creighton, became a very, very good player for the Blue Jays during that Doug McDermott kind of era, really, really talented teams uh, in that range. Uh, I don't know that Creighton's the only option. Certainly, you could look at Xavier. They're not super local. None of them really are, obviously, but Xavier, another team that Gonzaga has played in the NCAA tournament, has had some really good games against. Uh, Sean Miller being the head coach there, I think, helps Mark Few and Sean Miller have a relationship. Gonzaga fans have a relationship with Sean Miller as well, as well the kind of relationship that can help stoke a rivalry, certainly, uh, depending how long Miller is there and how that program gets built up. If he starts succeeding, if Xavier does well, if Gonzaga joins the Big East and those two teams are near the top of the standings, I think that could quite easily become a rivalry. And then, of course, there's Villanova. Hard not to consider Villanova. Yes, Jay Wright's gone. Kyle Neptune's going to be a phenomenal coach there. I think that program's going to have some success right out of the shoots. I don't think they're going to, we're going to really see a, a huge drop from them. And again, in 2025 and going forward, if Villanova's still a perennial top 10 team, you know, top top one or two seeds in the tournament, then I think that them and Gonzaga, if they started playing each other in the non or in the conference slate, would would end up being a rivalry there. And there's more. There's so many options. The Big East is so talented. There's so many iconic programs. They've had so many good matchups with Gonzaga. I mean, it's hard to not count Butler in this conversation for sure. Butler and Gonzaga had a really intense game in 2013. Certainly, you could see some continued matchups there. Tad Matt is a really good coach over there if things kind of turn around for them. But again, it's hard to know exactly what it's going to look like in 2025. And we're obviously operating under the assumption that Gonzaga is moving there, which is not a formality or or any kind of, it's not confirmed in any way, but just the kind of thing that if it were to happen, there's a lot of potentially really good options for, for rivalries for Gonzaga. Next question comes from Laney via Twitter DM. Laney says, if a Gonzaga to the Big East move does eventually happen, what does that do for the women's basketball program? Will they still be in contention for top of the standings or will the path to the NCAA tournament be more difficult? This is a great question, Laney. Uh, top of the conference, probably a little tough because of a program called UConn and Gino Ariema and what they have done uh, with the Huskies over there have been nothing short of extraordinary, incredible, one of the greatest dominant 
powerhouse programs in any college sport in history. Uh, they haven't quite been at the top tier recently, although, you know, they went to the national championship game last year. So it's hard to call that a disappointing season. They were a two seed, uh, but they kind of ran through everybody in the tournament and ended up getting beat pretty badly in the NCAA tournament game, but still made it all the way to that level. They're starting out this upcoming season ranked sixth in the country. Uh, Creighton is 21st. Villanova and DePaul each received votes, a handful more votes than the Zags did. So if if the Zags were in the conference and received the same amount of attention from the AP poll, they would be finishing, I guess that would be fifth. So obviously that's not a perfect way to look at it. Gonzaga is getting votes in part because of who they're playing in their conference. Moving over to the Big East where the conference would be more challenging, etc. It does complicate things. It's hard to know exactly where Gonzaga would be. I'm not, I cannot look at this program and what Lisa Fortier has done and the success that they have had and think, yeah, they wouldn't be good in the Big East. That's just not true. They would be good. They would be, I think, a top half team. I think they would consistently be right in that kind of three to six range somewhere in there. Uh, They might have some, some not so good seasons where they fall down to like eighth or ninth, which is just kind of unheard of for Gonzaga to do, but that's the the good and the bad of moving to the Big East. And they might have some really, really good seasons. Maybe they don't ever get number one because that's going to be really, really hard. But if you're the third or fourth, definitely third best team in the Big East, if you finish third in that conference, you're going to get a decent seed. And you can kind of look at what has happened the last couple of years. In my notes here, I just have last year, but last year Creighton was a 10 seed. They went to the Elite Eight. Really nice run from the Blue Jays last year. Really, really nice season. Again, UConn two seed went all the way to the national championship game. Nova was an 11 seed and they beat BYU and they advanced uh, into the second round of the NCAA tournament. Uh, DePaul got a play-in spot. They got spanked by Dayton in that pl- in that play-in game and didn't end up making the NCAA tournament. But that's still four teams that got a good look. The Big East frequently four to five teams getting serious consideration. So if you're Gonzaga and you're routinely in that four, five, six range kind of depends how you finish the year. You know, you're going to be kind of at the mercy of the at-large gods uh, in the NCAA tournament. But for Gonzaga, I think even the WCC right now, like if they don't win the tournament, usually they're still getting in even if they don't win at all. But you, there's not a lot of teams from the WCC that are going. So for the Big East, there's more teams that are going, but Gonzaga is going to have a harder time beating out all of those teams. That's just how it works. I think it'd be a phenomenal move. For the Lady Zags, I'm sure they would be very, very excited about it. Obviously, the the travel element and all of that would be tough, but you'd expect recruiting to tick up a little bit because they're playing UConn a couple times a year because they're getting a chance to to compete against the absolute best of the best. So I think this would be a really beneficial move for the women's basketball program, even if it doesn't mean that they're getting as many trophies uh, in in their uh, trophy case. All right, we're going to move on to the second segment. We're going to discuss what happens if the W what happens to the WCC, excuse me, if Gonzaga moves on and my rooting interests outside of Gonzaga. But first, I want to tell you all about Nissan. Our partners at Nissan have worked with us to create a new segment across the Locked On College Network titled Thrilling Moments where we highlight the most exciting play from the Zags' latest game or throughout the team's history. While we wait for the season to get started, we will highlight thrilling moments in program history. Today, we are talking about an iconic shot in a non-conference rivalry game. When Gonzaga nearly blew a 10-point lead against the Washington Huskies in 2018, they were up 40-30 to at halftime. They let Mike Hopkins' UW team climb all the way back into that game. And then, at the last minute, they were saved by a 15-foot jumper from Rui Hachimura right at the buzzer, knocked it down, gave the Zags another victory, stunned 
the Huskies continued that heated, heated rivalry between those two teams. Really, really fun game, fun shot from Rui. This segment has been inspired by the thrilling new designs featured across Nissan's new lineup of vehicles. Pursue what thrills you in the all-new Frontier, Armada, or Pathfinder today. Available now at NissanUSA.com. All right, segment number two, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags. I want to sincerely thank all of you for making this podcast your first listen of the day. For your second listen today, check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast. From the games that matter the most to the biggest stories in sports, go beyond the scoreboard and behind the scenes with local experts and insights only Locked On can provide. Locked On Sports Today, available on this app, YouTube, and wherever you get podcasts. All right, this next question here comes from Jackson via Gmail. Jackson says, if Gonzaga ends up in the Big East in 2025, we are sticking with our theme today, folks. What will happen to the WCC? Will St. Mary's become the Gonzaga of the conference? Will they challenge for multiple bids or do they fall back to whack status? Well, I, I hope the WCC doesn't quite fall to whack status. Not trying to let the whack catch any strays today here on Monday morning, but uh, I, it's going to be tough. Losing BYU and Gonzaga in a, in a short period of time, again, if this were to happen, is a pretty huge blow for a conference that has really prided themselves on having two to three teams competing for the NCAA tournament every single year. Most mid-major programs do not have that. The WCC has been able to tout, hey, we have the best team in the world, which is always helpful to be able to say that we have the best college basketball program or a top three program for the last five years. Uh, we also have had St. Mary's, who's continually been in the NCAA tournament. We've had BYU, who is routinely in the NCAA tournament, of course, San Francisco last year. Losing BYU, losing Gonzaga is a, is a really devastating blow. You're left with St. Mary's, a good program, a very good program, a underrated nationally program. But they're not, they don't have the cachet, they don't have the, the media kind of built up, they don't have this very prominent program, iconic players, things like that, that kind of help get them on national TV a lot and get a lot of exposure to the program. I think they would continually, if, if they were left with a non-BYU, non-Gonzaga conference, and at this point we're not talking about adding anybody, yeah, St. Mary's would win. I, I think they'd win every year or most every year. Maybe San Francisco clips them once or twice if they have a really hot run. Maybe we see something happen at Santa Clara like we did where they happen to have a, a really, really good player in Jalen Williams. And and perhaps they can kind of make some noise that way. But I think it's going to be St. Mary's Conference to lose. Certainly the WCC would make some additions, but I there's not, I mean, there's no possible way to replace Gonzaga and BYU. <laughs> Gonzaga is the top program in the country. You can't replace that. BYU, while they weren't, at that level, they were still a top 50 program most years, top 40 programs a lot of years, also a huge school, really, really well-known brand, huge stadium, big, big amounts of money, things that are going to just be absolutely impossible to find in the next wave of conference realignment. You talk about Grand Canyon, you talk about Seattle U, Wichita State, which would be a nice addition, maybe Cal Baptist, an up-and-coming program. There are some options out there that aren't bad that aren't terrible necessarily, but nothing that comes close. I mean, none of those programs are, are anywhere near where Gonzaga and BYU are at their potential departure points, again, with Gonzaga being a if-not-win situation. So I, I think the, the WCC would still remain better than the WAC. Uh, I think especially if they pulled somebody like Grand Canyon or Seattle U from the WAC, uh, that would further weaken that conference and strengthen or at least keep the WCC afloat a little bit longer. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're going to be falling behind the Mountain West. That's for sure. The A-10, uh, some of those that are mid-tier, w, or excuse me, mid-tier, mid-major conferences. 
WCC, instead of being one of the best mid-major conferences, would be a middle-tier one. And that's a fairly significant drop. I think St. Mary's keeps that conference nationally relevant in the sense that they're still going to be talked about. They're still a program that's going to get potentially, you know, top six, seven seeds in March. That happens to them somewhat regularly. I think that would continue to happen, uh, especially if they can continue to schedule better in the non-conference, something they've been working on doing there. Uh, But yeah, this would be a a significant blow to the WCC. That goes without saying. Next question comes from Easton on Instagram. Easton says, are there any non-WCC college basketball programs or programs you're hoping to see programs or that you're hoping to see succeed this year or going forward and why? Yeah, well, I've mentioned this before, but I am an alumni of Seattle U. I graduated from Gonzaga in 2013 and I got my master's degree at Seattle U in 2015. So I've always been partial to the Red Hawks. Clearly, I mentioned them in that last comment, uh, as I know for a fact that one of their big goals is to get into the WCC. This is something that they have been striving towards. They have been updating their facilities. They have been expanding their reach. They've been growing in every sport. Uh, Their soccer programs are phenomenal. Their baseball team has been a little inconsistent, but at times has been very, very good. Uh, Certainly, we've seen their basketball program have the best season they've had. Uh, in a very long time last year under coach Chris Victor, who started the season uh, as an assistant coach, but took over really early in the year after coach Jim Hayford was let go. Victor led that team to a really, really nice season. Cameron Tyson is back, extraordinarily talented young guard. They lost Darion Trammell, who transferred to San Diego State, and is going to be one of the best players in the league. I'm just going to tell you that right now. He's he's a real chance to be Mountain West Player of the Year, or at least all Mountain West first team. He's extraordinarily talented. Tough loss for Seattle U. They still have Riley Grigsby, though. I think this is going to be a good team. I think there's a reasonable chance that they're a bit of a sleeping giant. Seattle's a huge market. They are rebuilding facilities right now. The new facility, I don't know the timeline on it, but if they, if slash when they have this new new facility on campus in Seattle, instead of having home games at Climate Pledge and head up, instead of having home games in the small arena that they currently have, if they get this bigger facility, a multi-use building, get some more fan interest, get some recruits that start showing up because, hey, maybe I couldn't go to UW, but I want to stay in Seattle. And now that Seattle use a bit more of a nationally relevant program, a team that's legitimately contending for NCAA tournament spots, you can start to see that grow a little bit for them. And I think college basketball would be better if Seattle U was good. They haven't been good since the 50s when they had Elgin Baylor. But I think it'd be nice to see another West Coast team kind of pop up, start to have some success, whether they are winning the WAC every single year or just winning it periodically, whether they do move over to the WCC, whatever it may be, it would be fun to see that program succeed. The other one for me is UNLV. I don't have any specific ties to UNLV, the running rebels, other than I think college basketball is better when UNLV is good. I think it's a, it's a good sport when UNLV is right there. They've, they've been this powerhouse in basketball for a program that's synonymous with college basketball success. You look at Larry Johnson, the early 90s teams, it's just incredible amount of success. And uh, now they're kind of just like a mid-tier team in the Mountain West and I don't want to say that makes me sad. I don't have that strong of an emotional attachment to it, but it's nice when UNLV is good. It'd be nice to see their name cropping up alongside San Diego State, alongside Boise State, who I'm also rooting for because of Leon Rice, former Gonzaga assistant coach, who's the head coach over there who recently signed a five-year extension. He's doing a phenomenal job. Always good to see former Gonzaga coaches succeed. Uh, It goes without saying that I'm always rooting for them, so I'm always rooting for Long Beach State and the 49ers. I'm Struggling to root for Arizona a little bit, but I have I love Tommy Lloyd, of course, so I'm happy to see him have success, even if it's at the expense of, of being at a program like Arizona. But UNLV is kind of a, a program that I wanted to mention because there's not an obvious tie to Gonzaga or to me personally, but just 
a program that I think the the sport is better when UNLV is good. So it'd be nice to see them kind of turn this around. They've been struggling for the last few years. So if they could kind of get back into national relevance, I think I think that makes West Coast basketball a little bit more fun. It makes Mountain West basketball a little bit more fun. And it makes college basketball a little bit more fun. So nothing wrong with that, right? All right, two segments down. We're going to come back in the third and final segment. We're going to answer more listener submitted questions. We're talking about Zags and the NBA. But before we do that, I want to tell you all about sweat block. It's fall wedding season, and I cannot tell you how nice it is to not have to worry about sweating through my dress shirts while out on the dance floor thanks to sweat block. I was able to fix my sweating issue and still cut a rug with Sweatblock. Sweatblock was created by a doctor to help with his own excessive sweating. It is doctor created and doctor recommended. If you or someone you love is experiencing embarrassing sweater odor, try Sweatblock. Save 20% with promo code locked on at sweatblock.com. Also available on Amazon. All right, segment three, still any patents, still locked on Zags. And now we are talking about a pair of Zags in the NBA as we close out Mailbag Monday for the week, the last Mailbag Monday before the Zags will have at least played a game. It's an exhibition game against Tennessee on Friday, but still going to be fantastic to get to see the Zags in action. This next question comes from Sam via Twitter DM. Sam says, is Kelly Olynyk the greatest Zag to ever play for the Utah Jazz? But seriously, after his hot start, how do you see his season playing out? Yeah, I would assume that this is a bit tongue-in-cheek because, of course, John Stockton, the greatest Gonzaga basketball player in NBA history, one of the greatest point guards in NBA history, played for the Utah Jazz for his entire career, made a name for himself there in Utah. Kelly Olenek now in his first season, his first three games with the Utah Jazz after getting traded there from the Detroit Pistons right before the start of the NBA season. Kelly's been incredible. You know, we've seen Kelly have these spurts of, of tremendous success in the NBA. Sometimes he does it in the playoffs. He's got a reputation for being a guy who you can really kind of count on in clutch situations in the playoffs. Game seven against the Washington Wizards uh, when he was with the Boston Celtics. Uh, I was going to say a few years back. I guess it's been a while since that happened. But regardless, we've seen him really ball out in key situations. Of course, he spent about a half season with the Houston Rockets a few years ago on a rebuilding team. And he just balled out for Houston. Looked like a legitimate all-star caliber player in that short period of time. Went to Detroit. Didn't have the same level of success. Part of that was injury-ridden. Part of that was misuse by the coaching staff in Detroit, just kind of unsure what to do with him and with Isaiah Stewart and Sadiq Bey and kind of the, the the unique front court that they had there. Ultimately, it kind of made sense for them to move him for a player that fits their needs a little bit more in Bogdanovich. So I think this makes sense. And Utah is tanking, or they're attempting to tank. That was the plan, was that they you know, they traded Donovan Mitchell, they traded, traded Rudy Gobert, they acquired a metric buttload of picks over the last decade, the next decade or so, effectively. They put together a roster that is decent, but not expected to be ultimately competitive. And yet here they are, winning a couple games that they shouldn't be winning. Uh, Kelly Olenek hit a game-winning finger roll against the New Orleans Pelicans uh, in their most recent game on Sunday evening. Uh, he went five or six, five for, five for six from deep against the Minnesota Timberwolves in his second game of the season so far. Again, through just three games this year, he's averaging 16.5 points, three assists, two rebounds. He's shooting just under 48% on two-pointers. And he's shooting a whopping 75% from three. That is nine for 12 from distance on the year. 80% from the free throw line as well. 
I like what I'm seeing out of Kelly. I've watched about one one half of Utah Jazz basketball this season, but I've watched highlights. I've read updates on kind of what they're doing with him. It sounds like he's getting a, a chance to play more of a role similar to what he played in Houston, which is what we were hoping to see for Kelly Olynyk because we know that he can succeed in that kind of role in that situation. More of a facilitator, not playing as much underneath the rim, kind of being asked to get the ball away from the rim, attack on the dribble, do dribble handoffs, pass the ball, facilitate the offense. That's why you're seeing, you know, he's only got six rebounds in three games, which is unusual for a seven footer, but he's got, you know, he's got nine assists in three games as well. So we're seeing him be more of a facilitator, be more of a scorer. Again, this Utah team, not particularly great, not a lot of stars or or high usage rate players on the team, which allows Kelly to be more of a high usage guy. He's starting, he played 37 minutes against the Pelicans, 37 minutes for Kelly Olenek in his 11th NBA season coming off a major knee surgery. You love, love, love to see all of that. I don't know how Kelly's season's going to finish up, although I can tell you one thing. If Utah's pretty committed to the tank, if they want Wembenyana, if they want Scoot Henderson, the projected second pick in the next draft, they're going to probably have to trade Kelly. Like they, this, Kelly does not want to be on a tanking team. He is going to lead your team to victory, clearly. That is what he did against the Pelicans. He hit it. It was a bit of an ugly shot if you haven't seen the highlight, but Kelly Kelly made a lot of ugly shots while he was at Gonzaga. He's made a lot of ugly shots in his NBA career. I, I don't think that it's luck. I don't think that it's slop. I think that he just makes ugly shots. That is what he can do amongst many other talents that he has in the NBA. And I think that ultimately, if he continues to play well, A, he's going to endear himself to the Jazz faithful. But more importantly, I think the Utah team is going to say, well, what can we get for him? Can we trade him at the deadline for a couple of picks or, you know, a salary match that we can cut and then also a few picks? And I think that, I don't know if he's going to average 16-3 and for the rest of the season, but I don't think it's crazy at all to imagine him averaging around that for from now until February. And then I think at that point, Utah would look seriously to, to find a team to trade him to who is contending, who maybe has an injury in the front court or who just needs some more depth out there, needs a player who can stretch the floor, whatever it may be. I think if that happens, A, it's great news for Utah because that's what they acquired him to do effectively is be trade bait uh, to get more pecs, more assets in the future. And I think it's good for Kelly in the sense that he then gets to go play for a championship. He's been to NBA Finals. He's been on that stage. He wants to be back there. I also think it probably would hurt his production if he got traded to a team in the middle of the season that probably wouldn't use him nearly as much as the Utah Jazz are using him. I say probably, but that's pretty much a guarantee that that's how it would go. So Kelly may not have the same production. He may not be as his numbers on the back of his basketball card may not look as good on the new team that he goes to. But ultimately, if he's a contender, a role player for a team that's that's, you know, going places, that's trying to win a national championship or an NBA finals championship. Uh, I think that he'd be happy with that. I think the Utah Jazz would be happy with that. I think whatever team acquires him would be quite happy with that. So we're only three games in, so, you know, so there's a long time to go. But right now it looks like things are all going as planned for Kelly Olenek and the Utah Jazz. Final question of the show comes from Taylor via Gmail. Taylor says, what is Jalen Suggs' overall NBA potential at this point, And what does he need to do to reach his ceiling? He needs to shoot the ball better. That's the short answer to this question is he needs to shoot the ball a little bit better. He needs to be a bit more consistent. So far, he's only played two games this season. Uh, He's averaging 12 points per game. He's shooting 71% on two-pointers and 44% from three. So, so far, so good. So far, he has looked phenomenal. He's basically had one really, really good quarter of basketball. 
the third quarter in his first NBA game this season. Jalen Suggs dropped 18 points in the third quarter. He was a machine. He looked outstanding. He could not miss from deep. He was attacking the rim. He was catch and shoot off threes, something that he hasn't been historically all that good at. Even at Gonzaga, he wasn't great at that. He certainly wasn't good at it last year in the 48 games we saw from him as a rookie. But now he looks more confident with his shot. He's knocking down outside shots. He's always been extraordinarily good at attacking the rim. And defensively, I mean, he he is a, a star. He's a defensive star right now. You don't get as much attention for being a star on that end of the floor. It kind of matters how you do offensively in order to truly be considered like a star in the NBA. You have to really be good on both ends, but it's more important to be good on offense. For Suggs right now, his defensive impact is is staggering. For a kid his age, for a kid with his amount, I mean, he's played 50 NBA games at this point. He's 21 years old, I think, maybe 22. Regardless, he he's so young, and for him to already be this advanced and this experienced and this talented on the defensive end of the floor means that his floor in the NBA is really high. Obviously, injuries play a role here, and, and the fact that he has struggled to stay healthy is is scary. There's not really any other way to look at it. It's scary that this has been something that he's dealt with, and you really hope that it doesn't continue to be a problem for him, but... His floor as an NBA player is really, really good defensive guard. Really good defensive guard. And that's a pretty good floor to have. Offensively, you still need to see some uptick. There's mistakes, there's turnovers, there's poor decision-making, and then there's just the ball's not going through the net. Sometimes it's not because he's taking bad shots. Sometimes he's taking good shots. He's taking shots that are designed for him in the offense, looks that he's supposed to be taking, and they're just not going down. That'll probably even out in time. He'll get better as a shooter because you know what we know about Jalen Suggs. He's going to work really, really hard to improve the areas of his, of his game that he needs to improve. It is fairly clear what needs to be improved for Jalen Suggs right now. The outside shooting is a huge, huge element of that. If he can improve that, he doesn't need to be a 45% three-point shooter. He doesn't need to be like leading the league or leading his team. He barely... I, I don't think that him he doesn't even need to be average. Like it would be nice if he could get up to like 36, 37%, which is about what average is. But if he's 34, 33%, that's not great. But if he's 33% from three, he attacks the rim well, he gets to the free throw line well, he converts there, he plays all NBA caliber defense, that's pretty darn good. I think that the the ceiling is a little bit higher than that. But I think that that being like the floor or the mid-level for him 14, 15, maybe 17 points per game, you know, four or five rebounds, four or five assists, 32% from three, but he attacks the rim well. He plays exceptional defense, couple steals per game. You know, his advanced, his analytical numbers on defense are really, really good. That that being like right below his ceiling or even maybe his ceiling, I think that's fantastic. Is he going to be a multi-time all-star with those numbers, probably not. If the offense really ticks up and all of a sudden he finds himself being a 22, 24-point-per-game guy, shooting 37, 38% from three, then yeah, then we're talking about a guy who's probably an all-star, at least competing for it, on a team with Franz Wagner, on a team with Paolo Bancaro, Cole Anthony, Markel Fultz, Wendell Carter. Like, this is a good team in Orlando, a young team. They're not good yet. They haven't quite gotten there, but they have the potential to be very, very good. And if Jalen can be their, their defensive stalwart and a high-usage guard in the offense, he's going to be a really good player on a really good team, and that's fantastic. That is fantastic. I don't know if we're going to see a five-time, ten-time all-star, you know, Hall of Fame caliber player. I don't think that that's going to get there. I don't think that's particularly realistic to believe for him necessarily. But really good player, really good team, 
maybe all defensive teams at some point in his career, maybe a couple of years where you're like, is he going to be an all-star? Is he going to make the team? That is phenomenal. And I really think that that's kind of right within the realm of possibilities for what Jalen Suggs can be, assuming he can stay healthy, assuming he can make those improvements to his game. Both things that I feel pretty confident about going forward. All right, that is going to do it for me today. Really, really great week coming up for content. A lot more of those player previews coming as we get closer and closer to the season right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts and available on YouTube. Podcast links will be posted on Twitter at Locked On Zags as well as my personal Twitter account, Andy Patton CBB. Finally, thank you for making Locked On Zags your first listen. For your next listen, check out Locked On Sports Today podcast. The biggest stories of the day, plus instant reactions, big game recaps, and the take of the day. Available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get podcasts. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags.